prayed. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious, brisk day. We celebrate the opportunity to gather again together with brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for those that are infirmed that they may be healed. We pray for those that are suffering that they may be comforted. We pray for those that are not with us today that their traveling may be safe. And we pray for those and celebrate the victory of those that have gone on before us. Another victory in Christ. We ask these things to be with us today and this week. In Christ's name, amen. amen. this morning and have to scrape your car. We have garages probably. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. Um, but we're here. It's warm. Well today we're, we're beginning a new 37-week uh, series. Um, no, not really. J just seven weeks? That's shocking. You must just be dealing with half a verse or something, right? Um, now, seven weeks, uh, beginning today. Uh, seven's a good number, right? It's a good, it's a good biblical number. Um, we're actually going to have to rush a little bit because there's, yeah. But we have seven weeks. We're going to take the next seven weeks. And one of the things when we surveyed you a while back, one of the options was um, the Beatitudes in, in Matthew. And... Um, uh, Jeff suggested this, and several of you, um, when we voted, you know, the by secret ballot. <laughs> you know, and, uh, so, you know, we did the Apostles' Creed for 18 weeks. Uh, then we did, um, so we, we did a little, did a little theology. Uh, then we sojourned for several weeks in the Old Testament Psalms, and so we're now we're going to the Gospels. So we're trying to. Kind of move around a little bit um, where we're where we're studying. Um, most of you know that uh, Matthew and Luke both have versions of the Beatitudes. Um, Matthew has uh, eight or nine, uh, depending on how you count them. Uh, Luke has four, um, but Luke not only has four blessings. There's also four woes. Uh, that go with those. Um, I didn't think you were up for that. So uh, <laughs> we'll just go with Matthew. Matthew's is the one that we mainly know. Um, there's an argument for doing Luke 2, but maybe maybe another day, another time. So we're going we're gonna to sojourn in, in Matthew chapter 5, the first several verses. That's where the Beatitudes are found. Um, the word... Beatitude just comes from Latin, right? You knew that. Um, just comes from beatus in Latin, which means to, to bless. You know, all, each of the Beatitudes starts off, you know, blessed are somebody, right? Um, and we'll get to that more a little bit later about, like, what does that mean? Um, 
So just a couple things about Matthew, just to kind of remind ourselves, it's, as you know, it's the first gospel. Um, most scholars think it's probably, it's probably not the first gospel written. Um, most people think probably Mark was the first one written. Um, about 90% of Mark is in Matthew. So a lot of scholars think that uh, Matthew, um, who's traditionally regarded as the author, Matthew the tax collector, you remember him, um, pretty unusual character to have been a disciple of Jesus. Um, he's widely regarded to have been uh, the author and most people think he had some access to Mark uh, because uh, large sections are, are almost verbatim. Um, and so there's a lot of sharing. Uh, Matthew has his own take on it, um, partly because he has his own audience. Most scholars believe that Matthew's written primarily, uh, if not exclusively, to a Jewish audience. Um, so that's important to know. Um, there's, there's several hints about that. Um, Matthew doesn't explain anything Jewish in the book, as a lot of the other Gospels do. They'll have these little asides, sort of like, you have no idea what this is, so let me tell you what, it's a Jewish custom. Uh, Matthew doesn't do any of that. Uh, the other thing that Matthew does is he's real big. I mean, one of the things he's trying to do um, is show that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel. Uh, he is the Davidic Messiah, long awaited. And so more than any other gospel, uh, Matthew uh, points to certain specific ways uh, from uh, which, uh, by which Jesus is to be understood as the Messiah. So he's often referring to uh, the Hebrew scriptures, which would have been the only scriptures they had, of course. So he's referring to the scriptures and you know, about 65 times, right? It's a lot of times. Uh, he's, he's referring uh, to specific passages as a kind of uh, fulfillment. It's easy because we kind of dip in and out of the Gospels kind of not to see the structure. Um, we could spend the whole day just sort of marveling at the structure of Matthew. It's a highly structured literary piece. Um, and it's really, really interesting. And we won't take too much time, but at some point, take a look at it. Um, he has a kind of a, a prologue about Jesus' birth in, in the first couple of chapters. And there's sort of an epilogue at the end that we often call the Great Commission. Um, and in between there, he has these alternating um, narratives about Jesus. So verses th uh, chapters 3 and 4 are about you know, John the Baptist, and about the temptation narratives. Um, but he alternates between these narrative discourses about Jesus' ministry, and then he has these, what we call discourses, or, or times where Jesus teaches. And if you, if you have sort of like a red letter edition, um, you, you, you can see it, because there's these big chunks of teaching, and there's five of them, right? There's five of these, these chunks of teaching, and what we call the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, is the largest and longest of those blocks of teaching. In fact, it's the longest single block of Jesus' teaching in, in all the Gospels. Where it's just, I mean, Matthew 5, 
through 7 is just Jesus talking and teaching. Okay, this long sermon on the mount. Um, and so part, you know, part of what Matthew is probably trying to do to a Jewish audience, I mean, think about like what are the, the five books of Moses that we call the Pentateuch, right? Um, and so part of the sort of subtext here in Matthew is, is that Jesus is greater than Moses, right? And so and it's interesting, uh, there's these five blocks of teaching. And um, there, there are also interesting ways in which the first and the fifth sort of parallel each other, and the second and the fourth kind of parallel. And the middle one is the one about the parables of the kingdom. That's Matthew 13, which is really the sort of center of Jesus' whole message in the Gospel of Matthew, is it's about the kingdom. And we'll see that in the Beatitudes even. So it's a highly structured gospel that would be easy to miss if you just, which we so very seldom sort of step back and look at the whole book. Um, but it's a fascinating way that the book is constructed. Uh, and there's all kinds of ways in which Matthew loves to put something at the beginning and something at the end. So at the beginning, we'll hear that uh, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, right? That comes in Matthew, right, in the birth narratives. And then at the end, in the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? And I will be with you, right, until the end of the age. So this is God with us, sort of bookends the whole, the whole book. So Matthew's a, a fascinating book. Uh, but we'll, we'll need to remember that it's written to uh, primarily a Jewish audience. Um, and, and he's talking a lot about the kingdom, that's a central message of Jesus in all the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly. But uh, Matthew is going to be talking about that, and we'll have to talk about it. We've talked about the kingdom in here before, but we can't talk about it too much because Jesus didn't seem to be able to talk about it too much. It was the central message of what he was talking about. So Matthew 5 is where we are. And we'll just read the first couple verses. Um, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the, went up the mountain. Notice that he went up the mountain. Who went up, else went up the mountain? Jesus. Moses, yeah. He went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to speak and taught them, saying, then we're off and running. So he goes up the mountain. He sits down. That seems unusual to us, but that was common posture in the day. If you were a learned rabbi or teacher, you got to actually sit um, to teach. Now, what's, what's that about? Yeah. How come you get to sit? Um, okay. Different cultures, but he sat down and, and to teach. And the word there for teach is, is not just, you know, he just started to ramble. It's, it's a word that uh, in Greek means um, he he was going to instruct them in something formal. He was going to make some pronouncements. It's, it's, it's pretty serious stuff. It's not just he was just going to shoot the breeze with them for a few minutes. Okay, so this is uh, Matthew's way of saying something important is coming, and it's going to be for us, right, three chapters long. Of course, they didn't have chapters then, but it's a, it's a big block of teaching. And the opening are what we know as the Beatitudes, uh, these first several verses that are these sort of pronouncements uh, about Jesus that he's going to make. And I think it's important um, because uh, so many of them are kind of sh sort of short and pithy. Um, it's easy to sort of uh, think of them um, as kind of wisdom 
wisdom literature, right? That, uh, they almost seem like proverb-like. Um, but that would be a mistake. Um, because wisdom, generally, is something that you offer to somebody and they have to decide at the end of the day whether they think it's wise. Wisdom can be commended, but it, it's not commanded. And, and these aren't commands either. So you might ask yourself, what are these, these beatitudes? They're not, um, they're not sort of, um, you can kind of pick and choose and think, well, I, I like the second beatitude and the fourth one, but you can have the, the third and the fifth one. Um, I think it's important to know that, uh, that Jesus, Jesus is, is trying to, to open our eyes to, really what he's doing is pronouncing the reality of this new world called the kingdom that's breaking in. Like, what is this new world that's breaking in that Jesus calls the kingdom? Uh, what, what's the shape of it? How does, what does it look like? Uh, how would I see it? Uh, you'd have to have eyes to see. It's not obvious that a new world is breaking in. Um, so it's important to realize that Jesus is saying this. And, and because who says something matters? I mean, we love, particularly, this has always been the case. I mean, um, we, we love the quotable line. Um, a lot of you probably at some point in your life, you may still have them, although with, because you still use books. Um, but there are all kinds of websites you can go to, right, and get quotations for any occasion. Um, they used to actually make books of quotations. Seems so passe now. Um, and sometimes you don't care. You know, a lot of times in our, uh, in our lives, we just want to say something pithy and we'll say, you know, as it was said, and it's just, we just love that. Um, but it's important that we understand that what Jesus is saying, um, why we care about it, is because Jesus said it. Uh, and it matters that he said it. Um, I was thinking of some famous lines, and I was trying to think, of, just try to illustrate the point. Um, someone once said, um, my secret is very simple. I pray. Now, it matters who said that, right? I mean, if, if Bill Gates said that, uh, then you think of it one way, right? My secret is simple. I pray. Actually, Mother Teresa said that. Well, that becomes a very different quotation now, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, we were reminded this week that someone famously said, I have been, oh, I have seen the promised land. Right? Yeah, Martin Luther King said that in his last sermon. Right? Um, most of you know we remembered the 50th anniversary of his assassination on Wednesday. Um, now, if Peyton Manning says that, that's something different. <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, what's it mean to see the promise? Well, it, it depends on who says it. So, Jesus is not offering us just pithy sayings. Um, Blessed, I mean, the one we're looking at today, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, I mean, you can, you know, you can cross-stitch that if you want to and hang it on your wall. Um, but it matters who says it and why Jesus is saying it. Jesus is trying to say, 
Now there's this new thing, call it the kingdom, which was dangerous language in his day, because in his day there really were kingdoms. It sounds really archaic to us, because we don't have kingdoms, at least we don't think so. Um, but this was the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. And we should, we should note, I think we mentioned this before, but we'll need to mention it now, uh, when Matthew uses the language kingdom of heaven, he means exactly the same thing that the Gospels of Mark and Luke mean by kingdom of God. But because he's writing to a Jewish audience, you may recall, uh, that the Jews have an enormous reticence to even utter the word God on their lips. The word God is so holy that they try not even to say it. And so they developed all kinds of circumlocutions, right, which just means literally to talk around something. And so kingdom of heaven is a circumlocution for kingdom of God. Matthew means the very same thing that Mark and Luke do. So I just told you that, that Mark uh, offers Matthew about 90% of Mark into, into Matthew. But every time Mark has kingdom of God, Matthew has kingdom of heaven. Not because he's thinking of heaven as the place you go where you die. That's not what he's thinking about. He's just trying to refer to the things of God and to refer to the reign of God or the reign of heavenly things is, is what he's trying to talk about. But that's tricky. That's tricky because when we hear kingdom of heaven, a lot of us can just kind of think of heaven. It's not what he's talking about because we know in just the next chapter, right, or, or later on, where Jesus gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer, Right? What's Jesus tell us to pray about the kingdom? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth here as it is in heaven. So we're praying that the kingdom comes here. And this is what Jesus insists throughout his teaching, that in some way um, the kingdom is breaking in even now. This new world, this new social order, call it a kingdom. That was the main kind of social order they knew was a kingdom. But this is a kingdom that's ordered by God, not by men, which was most of the kingdoms that they knew. Sorry, women. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure you ran the show back then, really, actually, behind the scenes also. Um, but the, the men, you know, were the ones who looked like they were in charge, at least some of the time. Right, in these kingdoms of the world. But Jesus says a different kingdom is coming. A different kingdom that's ordered uh, according to God's character, God's desires, rather than humans. Um, and really these Beatitudes are all about the kingdom, what it looks like. Because, as we've mentioned before in here, this kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating, it is in some way present, but it's also not yet fully here. Both things are true. That's hard to keep in our heads. Like, well, is it here or is it not? Yes. Right? It is, it is breaking in. Um, and it's breaking in. Go back to that phrase from the Lord's Prayer. Right? What does it mean for your kingdom come? Well, your kingdom comes wherever your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So whenever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, there's a sense in which the kingdom is breaking in right there. 
Which is why Jesus can say things like, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's among you. Right here, right now. Because that's, that's God's desire. What's God's greatest desire? That, that all things be made whole. We've talked about this Jewish word shalom, right? Of wholeness and completeness. So whenever, whenever the created order is moving more towards fulfillment and fullness and completeness and wholeness, there's a sense in which the kingdom, right, which is the fulfillment of God's desire, but surely you know, the, this world is not yet ordered, is not yet embodying God's desires fully. But there are times when you can see it breaking in. And Jesus wants to give us eyes to see that. And Jesus wants us to be kingdom people. Right? People who, who, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, embody something of the character of this kingdom. So what can we say about this first beatitude? Jesus is trying to open our eyes to what the character of the kingdom is. And it's, it's an upside-down kingdom. We've used that language in here before. Uh, this is why um, it matters that Jesus says it, because some of the things he said, you'll think, well, that just doesn't sound blessed to me. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we wouldn't have any trouble at all if I gave you all a sheet of paper right now and said, who are the ones who are blessed in the kingdoms of this world? Just look around. Who do we consider to be blessed? We wouldn't have any trouble. It's obvious who we think the blessed ones are. Isn't it? Do I need to say it? It's us. I mean, let's just be honest. It's the successful ones, the, the well-educated ones, uh, the, the beautiful people, uh, the successful, uh, the wealthy, the influential, the well-connected. I could go on and on and on. Those are the ones the world considers to be blessed. Uh, and that's why a lot of us, for our whole lives, have been ambitious to be those things because we understand that's what it means to be blessed in the kingdoms of this world. Jesus wants us to see another world. Um, I can feel you shifting in your seats. <laughs> Jesus is trying to tell us who's blessed. And I, I think there, there are other translations out there. Um, this is why I love teaching adults rather than older children, 18 to 22. Because um, you remember things. I, mean, I could say Robert Schuller. They say, who's that? Um, you remember Robert Schuller, many of you. And um, you know, he had his own version of the Beatitudes. Right? He called them the Be Happy Attitudes. And, um, and happy is not a horrible translation of blessed, but in our culture, it just gets it all wrong. Primarily because we're confused. We don't know we are. But we're deeply confused about happiness. 
right? Um, for us, happiness is a state of being um, that has to do with whether I'm enjoying things or not, whether things are fun. Um, but it's really about being happy, it's really about how I'm feeling about things. Okay. Um, but happiness in the ancient world, uh, including the New Testament, when it uh, rarely uses that word because it can, gets us off, um, happiness wasn't about how you're feeling about something. It was whether or not you were living into your intended purpose. That's what happiness is. So even, even a pagan like Aristotle, when he's talking about happiness, he doesn't really care how you feel about anything. Happiness isn't a feeling. Happiness is whether you are living into, what Aristotle would say, whether you're living into humanity, your full humanity, as humanity was designed to be lived. And that's, that's what everybody ought to want, he says. That's everyone's desire, is to be happy. But it doesn't mean everyone's just to sit around feeling good about themselves. He makes no. You want to live into what you were designed for. That's true happiness. So if you understood that, then you could put happy there. But we don't mean that by happiness in our culture. And so it just gets it all wrong. It makes it sound like Jesus wants us to be happy. That Jesus is telling us how to be happy. Um, and the way we think about that, that's not, Jesus is not giving us advice about how to be happy. He's pronouncing this, these are the people who are blessed in this kingdom that's coming. And it's a kingdom that's unlike any kingdom you've ever seen. So you're going to need my help for you to see who's blessed in this kingdom. And the reason they're blessed is not because they're better people. They're blessed because these people are actually in a position to receive this new kingdom. That's why they're blessed. That's why they're blessed. Not because they're somehow morally better. But by being this way, they're actually capable of receiving this new kingdom that's breaking into our world. This kingdom that is so upside down that unless I tell you, Jesus says, um, you'll miss it. You won't see it. You won't receive it. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now notice when we get to the end of this list, the last one also says, theirs is the kingdom of God. Interesting, bookends on both ends. Um, I think everything in between is about the kingdom of God and how it's received. Uh, but we'll get there. Stay tuned. This is why it's going to take us seven weeks. Um, <laughs> But you're already wondering, like, there are eight Beatitudes, maybe nine. How's he going to do that in seven weeks? I don't know yet. Um, I got seven weeks to figure that out, right? So we're all good. So, so let it be said, I am going to do something quicker than it looks like I should. I know that's very counterintuitive for those of you who've been in the class more than a week. Um, so what's Jesus trying to say? I mean, you may know that in, in Luke's version, Luke's version is just... Blessed are the poor. Matthew has blessed are the poor in spirit. And some commentators have said, you know, uh, those who are actually material poor will, will gravitate to Luke, because they like that one. 
Uh, those of us who are rich, that would be us, uh, will like Matthew's version, because it sounds like he's spiritualizing it. You know, the poor in spirit, not the really poor, but the poor in spirit. But I think that's wrong. I actually think they're both trying to get at the same thing. Um, so what's it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, I think Matthew's trying to talk about that state of the human being uh, that knows that you're needy, that knows that you don't have it all together, that knows that you're deeply vulnerable. I know last year, not this year, was the year of vulnerability, but we're not done with it yet, right? I mean, the materially poor know they're vulnerable. Um, the poor in spirit know they're vulnerable too, that they, they by themselves are beggars before God. That, that all of us are beggars before God. We don't like beggars very much. Um, if you're like me, um, it's hard to face, I mean, real beggars. Um, they make us uncomfortable for all kinds of reasons. It's hard not to cross the street to the other side to avoid them, right, those people. Um, a lot of us find it difficult, myself included, to make eye contact with beggars. Um, I think because we, we sense that if we make eye contact, um, they have a claim on us, right? If, if we make eye contact, we have to acknowledge they're a human being in need, probably in greater need than I am, and they have a claim on me, and I don't like that. I don't like the, the discomfort of that. And so we often look, look down or look away or pull our phone out or engage somebody else in conversation, look the other direction. We don't like beggars. Um, and we tell ourselves, you know, well, they're probably on the, the take. You know, they're probably, you know, they probably don't really need it. They probably, you know, it, we just tell, you know, I tell myself all these things. Um, they're, they're irresponsible. Why don't they get a job? You know, I work really hard for what I, I mean, we just go on and on and on. But partly, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to speak for everybody, partly, why beggars make us uncomfortable is maybe because they reveal to us our own vulnerability and we don't like that. Because we have a lot more in common with them than we're really uh, prepared to acknowledge most of the time. And, and the word Jesus used for poor here, he doesn't mean, it's not just uh, people who have the basic necessities. Jesus had a word for that in Greek, and in Aramaic too. I mean, there's, there's a word for like the working poor who are just living on the edge, just eking out enough. That's not the word Jesus used. Jesus uses this word for like the destitute, right? Those who are destitute in, in spirit. Those who utterly know without any pretense 
that they are beggars, right? Which is hard in a culture that preaches the virtues of self-sufficiency. You have to take a lot of pride in being self-sufficient. And I get a lot of strokes. I mean, the blessed people, part of it being blessed is being self-sufficient, not being needy. We've talked about this before. Um, if you need my help, you tell me. I enjoy being there for you. Um, but if I'm in need, I'm not going to tell you. I find it a lot easier to be the helper than to be the one who acknowledges I need help. Because all the cues in our culture says those people are weak. Right? So don't be vulnerable. Don't acknowledge that. And Jesus is announcing. He's not saying try to be vulnerable and a beggar. He says you are. And until you are, you will not see the kingdom. You just won't see it. You, ha you have to be willing to receive it. But I'm so convinced that everything that I've worked so hard in my life, you know, my success, my reputation, my degrees, my self-sufficiency, everything that I have in my hands is so important. It makes me so who I am. I'm so busy keeping all this going that... I can't possibly receive the kingdom. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. Because in their destitution, in their recognition, that they, that they are beggars, that they are needed, that they are vulnerable. And, and the beauty of Matthew's point is you don't have to be. He's not just talking to the materially poor. Although the materially poor probably, for the most part, although not exclusively, find it easier to be poor in spirit. Because <laughs> it's easier for them to know that they're but, Jesus, but Matthew, the beauty of Matthew is he's not just talking to the materially poor. He's talking to us. And he's saying, if, if you can't see through all those things that you and I have built up to protect us from the truth, which is, apart from God, we can do nothing. Then it will be hard for us to receive the kingdom. It will be hard for us to enter into this new world. Because our hands are too full. Our hands are just too full of other things that we, we have used to, to hedge our lives in such a way that tries to convince ourselves and tries to send out a word to others that that we've got things together, we got things handled. It doesn't mean we won't have a setback here or there, but for the most part, we got things under control. 
And again, take a lot of pride in that. Jesus is saying, here are the ones who are blessed in this kingdom, in this new world that's breaking in, that I'm bringing, that I'm inaugurating. It's, it's those who, who are humble, those who are poor of spirit. And not surprisingly, Jesus, Jesus is embodying this. He's not just talking about something else. Because ultimately the kingdom is about being drawn into communion with God and with Christ. I mean, Matthew's, you know, Jesus is humble in Matthew. Even though he's the lineage of the king of David, the royal line, I mean, he is incredibly humble. He is poor of spirit. The God of the universe comes in human flesh with humility. One of the things I love about Muncie and today's Communion Sunday and in the journey service we were looking at that famous passage at the end of Luke, the story of the road to Emmaus, where Jesus is revealed as who he is in the breaking of the bread. And one of the things, it's, it's a simple thing, but I think it's not a simple thing. It looks like a simple thing, but I think it's a profound thing. Uh, one of the things I love about how we receive communion here at Muncie, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's, it's Communion Sunday, let's mention it again. So when if you haven't you know, been to worship yet, or well, the next time we have communion, you'd be reminded of this. You know, we are urged to come with our hands cupped. There is a reason for that, right? We're beggars, okay? I mean, I grew up in a tradition, um, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that it was evil, right? I'm not saying that. But I just grew up in a tradition that, you know, we just passed around trays that had, you know, little chiclets of bread, and you got one yourself, and you, you know, um, we sort of served ourselves. Um, again, I'm not trying to deride that. I'm not trying to mock that. Um, but it's one of those things where I didn't know what I was missing until I saw it done another way. Because I need the reminder every chance I get that I am a beggar. And so I, look, I actually look forward to, to coming like this, because I, where else in American life do I come like this? We hate the people who come like this. We do. We don't want to be the people. I don't want to be the person who comes like this. I don't want to acknowledge that I'm needy. But if I'm not willing to come like this, I can't receive the kingdom. My hands are too full with other things. All these other things that, you know, I'm trying to offer to show that I'm self-sufficient, that I'm not going to receive the gift. Blessedness is a gift. Right? That's why the language of blessedness is so much more powerful than happiness. Right? 
Because ultimately, happiness is about how you feel about things in the moment. Uh, it's about me, how I'm feeling. Blessedness, I mean, blessedness is a gift from somebody else. I don't know if you've ever tried to bless yourself. <laughs> right? Kind of reminds me of the, the Apostle. Is that the name of the, the movie where... Who was it? Who's the... Uh, Robert. Robert De Niro, was that? No. No, no. no. no Robert Duvall. Yes. Robert Duvall, where he baptizes himself. <laughs> right? He goes out in the river and he baptizes himself. Right? Um, something theologically off about that. Right? I'm going to lay my hand on my head and I'm going to bless myself. Right? Blessing is something that happens to you. Right? It comes from outside. It's a gift. But to receive a gift, you have to have open hands. You can't do anything to earn it. This is why I want you to hear this really clear. Jesus, I mean, there is a sense in which Jesus is trying to urge you to let people know that, you know, this is the way the world is. But, but Jesus is not commanding them to be poor in spirit. Like, it's not a lesson. Now, so, so now we're getting to the end of the Sunday school lesson. So what should I say? Go be poor in spirit. Jesus is not saying that. He's trying to tell you the way reality is. You'll have to decide what you do about that. But the point isn't that I'm going to make God give me a gift by being poor in spirit. That's not a gift. I think I'm putting God under obligation. Now God has to give me the gift of the kingdom. No. Jesus is saying the poor in the spirit are in a position to receive it. He's just, he's just telling you the way the world, the real world not the one that we think is the real world. But the real world that's breaking into this one, which is the only world that's going to endure forever, that world is one that's available to the poor in spirit. And you should know that. And it's the first opening line of the Sermon on the Mount. Unless, unless we come like this, unless the posture of my life, not just once a month at communion, but unless the posture of my life is like this, I'll find it very difficult to receive all that God has to give. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word, both incarnate in Jesus Christ, for his words spoken to us. We pray that his words this day um, might be part of this process of transformation that you're working in our lives through the Spirit. That even today, that hearing your word uh, might be part of uh, helping to remove the scales from our eyes that we might see and enter in and be prepared to receive the gift of your kingdom, uh, the gift of you. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Thank you, Phil.